Welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is our 13th No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles podcast concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, the failure of animal welfare regulation, veganism as the baseline of the animal rights movement, and the importance of the principle of ahimsa or nonviolence in all of our advocacy efforts. Well, this is the first podcast of the new decade. And um, I'm quite confident that this decade will see a great growth in veganism and in the abolitionist movement, which is um, is growing by leaps and bounds. In any event, we have a, a really, I, what I hope will be a good program this week. Um, I mentioned in uh, on, on the website, abolitionistapproach.com, that there was going to be a two-part uh, BBC program uh, that was going to be on the BBC World Service which is the most widely listened to radio broadcast in the world and that it was a uh, it was a two-part series that was being done by a man named Victor Schoenfeld and Victor Schoenfeld in 1982 did a film called The Animals Film that was narrated by Julie Christie it was a very uh, influential film it was the first time it certainly was the first thing I ever saw uh, that really showed how badly animals are treated by humans and and it was a, it was a it, it had a real big impact um, in uh, in terms of uh, of of providing uh, some very powerful visuals. Well, anyway, Victor has now come back 27 years later, and he wants to see whether or not things have changed since he made the film in 1982. And the BBC is doing this two-part series as part of its uh, One Planet uh, uh, program called Animals and Us. And the first segment was broadcast on New Year's Eve, December 31st. The second one will be uh, broadcast on January 7th. So what I thought we would do in this podcast is I have with me Dr. Roger Yates, who is a sociologist uh, and a very good sociologist, and one of the few people who I think really understands the the movement um, in a in, in, who understands the 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 history of the animal movement and uh, where we are today and how we got there, and Elizabeth Collins from the the, the New Zealand podcast phenomenon, Elizabeth Collins, um, and 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 actually I, I have to tell you, initially I proposed this to Roger. Roger, are you there? I am. Good evening. Yes, there's there's Roger and Elizabeth. You're there, right? Yes. Hello. Yes. Yes. Good. 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 Okay. Fine. We're. It's working. It's working. The Skype. The Skype. The Skype connection is working. Um, initially, I proposed this to Roger, and he he said yes. This is a good idea. He said, but don't you think we should have somebody uh, uh, participate in the discussion who who um, actually might be a little younger and have a different perspective from uh, us. I thought that was a somewhat ageist comment on Roger's part, um, and and uh, but 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 he was he was he was, he was in fact correct um, that um, you know it, it it was it was it would be interesting to get the perspective of somebody you know Roger and I were around when the when the animals film came out in 1982 as a matter of fact we were adults when the film came out in 1982 and um, and and we both saw it when it came out in 1982 and um, and Elizabeth uh, have you ever seen the animals film? I have not. It's it's you know it's interesting. It um, I think you know it was it was unique in in terms of what it was at the time. Um, you know there really wasn't anything out there like it. And and in the you know later eighties and throughout the nineties and certainly in the past few years, there's been such a proliferation of of videos that um, uh, the, the animals film uh, is is. 
I, th- I still think it's a it's a, an excellent piece of documentary filmmaking, but um, you know it it it's been uh, 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 I don't want to say supplanted because it hasn't. I mean I think I think that it, there's just been such a such a, a proliferation of video material out there that um, you know there are a lot of things that people don't see, and uh, it's not surprising to me that this is one that you that you haven't seen, and probably most of the people I would imagine. In your uh, in your generation, in any event. Well, let me just say before we go further, th- there's going to be a second segment uh, on January seventh, and I don't know that's going to be dealing with vivisection. But I I I don't know what else uh, Schoenfeld will be talking about in that segment, and um, so I don't want to prejudge that. And and, uh, uh, and 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 also, you know, I have a lot of respect for Victor. I think. Uh, I think Roger does as well, um, and um, Elizabeth, if she knew him, she would have respect for him as well. Um, but, uh, but in any event, so so I want to I want to preface that by saying I think overall it was a really great idea for Victor to do this, um, and um, and uh, so let's discuss what's what's uh, what what you thought of the um, what you thought of the, the program. Go ahead, anybody, say something. Well, I think the first general um, comment I would make here, Gary, is that. Um the program, the World Service program, is a reflection of the animals film itself. The animals film is broken into two parts, looking at factory farming on the one hand and this section on another. It does start actually with, with a look at pets, but in, in general terms, it's factory farming, half of it, and, uh, and then this section. And obviously, this program seems to be mirroring that in, in a sense. We've, we've had factory farming for this first week and this section for the next week, which we, we're yet to, to hear. So there's an echo there of the, um, the format, uh, I suppose. I think from uh, an abolitionist point of view, we, we must question about whether the emphasis is, is entirely about factory farming or whether we're going to be looking at farming in general. That that would be an issue for us as abolitionists, obviously. Um, but there is, as I said, this echo w- with um, with the film itself and also with the style as well, the, the intercutting of the uh, the Vox Pops and the... And the um, the, the TV clips in, into the um, the interviews in general that that was very much like like the general film. So I think that um, there was a reflection there in terms of the content of the of the early film and then this update and also style. At the same time, I think that um, when the animals film first came out, I don't suppose the word vegan. I don't think the word vegan was used, whereas the word vegan was used quite a lot in this program. So in that sense, there's a bit of a movement. Uh, to, to a recognition that veganism is becoming uh, important within the movement. So there was a kind of following on uh, and revisiting going on there in, in terms of the program. Elizabeth, what, now, having not seen the Animals film, but listening as, as one of the millions of people who did not see the Animal film, who, 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 have, who have now listened to this, this uh, uh, program, what was, your, what was your impression, overall impression? My overall impression was that it covered suffering and factory farming and didn't cover animal use. And I think um, the best part of it was when there was an issue, the issue of the welfare groups and their um, campaigns were discussed and were subtly exposed. I think that we discussed that a little bit. I discussed it with my friends here, whether or not your average person would pick up on the criticism. I think um, it is a welfareist um, production. And um, I think that 
some people may be um, intrigued by what the things that you said, uh, Gary, and, and try to find out more about you. Oh, that was an interesting, you know, concept. And people who support HSUS um, may have had a little bit of insight. But overall, I don't want to rain on the parade, but I really just think that it was um, a, a further continuation of this. We must, the animals that we use for food must be treated better. And that's been going on for decades. So I don't know if it's going to do much paradigm shifting um, with regard to people's like a new idea. I wish there had been more about just animal use. It's it's interesting. I, I had a, a, a similar reaction. I mean, in fairness to Victor, the animals film was about treatment. I mean, you know, it was it was it was made in 1982, and it was a focus. You know, it, its exclusive focus was on treatment. And um, and I was so so in fairness to him, uh, the fact that he comes back 27 years later and he asks the question, "Have we made any improvements in how we treat animals?" Um, rather than have have we moved toward developing an ethic which is critical of animal use, period, and which is moving in the in, in an abolitionist direction, I, it doesn't surprise me. What was interesting was when he started the program, at the outset he said, um, this is not going to be balanced, it's not going to be dispassionate. Uh, I am opposed to all suffering, uh, all animal suffering, whether it's for pleasure or for need, and and I thought, wow, you know, because he he, he here it, it seemed that he was uh, that he was uh, really taking a position, uh, a rather strong position on animal use because there's no animal use that doesn't involve the the kindest animal use involve what we could what we might call the kindest animal use involves suffering and death, um, and and um, so you know there's no such thing as animal use without suffering. So I thought when he said, well, you know that 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 he was he was challenging animal suffering opposed to animal suffering. Uh, for human pleasure or human need, that he he might go further. But what he ended up doing was very much staying with with um, the format of the uh, of the animals film and and asking whether or not we've made any improvements in the treatment of farm animals. And I suspect next week, although I don't know, I suspect next week the question will be: Have we made any improvements in? Uh, the numbers of animals we're using, or the procedures that we're doing, or the you know the the laboratory treatment issues. Um, so so in in a sense, in fairness to him, the movie was about treatment, and this program is 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 about treatment. I do agree. I mean, it, I, I would I would also though uh, agree with Roger that um, the fact is he mentioned veganism several times. I wish he had talked a little bit more about that. But uh, again. Um, you know, it, it 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 got mentioned, and I suspect that uh, that's uh, that's something in and of itself. But in any event, yeah, well, to, also if I if I could just jump in there too, uh, in a, in a sense that um, you know, in defense of Victor, I guess um, he can only really report for what's going on. He, he he can't really report on on the the progress of of the movement to end animal use, and in on the grounds that the movement that he's reporting on is is one which is regulating animal treatment. So in a sense, he can only report on that. I think he did a, quite a good critical job, in a sense. And also, in terms of of treatment, I noticed that the the general producer of the series, uh, One Planet, uh, Mike Williams, I think it was, in, introduced the program and said this is about the way we treat animals. And then, the interesting thing there was, and this brought back a real memory for me, was it it, it went to Channel Four, which is the the uh, the British TV um, station, which was launched. 
uh, in in uh, 1982 as well. And so the Elmer's film featured in its first week of broadcasting. And it, it, it actually um, used the little clip which introduced the animals film. And there it talked about the film was about the exploitation of non-humans. Didn't, didn't yes. talk about treat, treatment. Uh, another interesting thing, of, of course, as well, is that um, I agree that the animals film in general is about treatment. But one of the first statements about, uh, in the animals film, one of the first things that Julie Christie says is a critique of the property status. Through, through the children's paintings, there's, there's a bit actually when the titles are coming up, where, where you where you roll past a series of children's paintings, and um, there is a, a critique, if you like, of uh, the property status there of non-human animals. I suppose what what really we're looking for abolitionists is is consistency, and that's the bit that's not not there, I think either in the original film or in this program. Well, I, you know, I vaguely remember... I mean, I haven't seen the Animals film in some years. Actually, I have a copy of it um, in my office, uh, and and uh, I'll be returning to school next week and probably will watch it again. But um, I vaguely remember what you're talking about, but I never got the impression... I, I didn't get the impression when I saw that, uh, and I've seen it several times, that it ever really was was challenging use per se as much as it was as it was uh, as it was focused on 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 treatment and um and i certainly think that you know uh, uh victor i mean victor went uh, made it clear i think in the in the segment that he's not a vegan he's a vegetarian exactly and and which which um surprised me a bit actually uh surprised me a bit and um my guess is is that uh you know he he's uh He's probably working toward veganism, but uh, uh, he's not. And I was surprised because... Um, yeah, I mean, he's a, a bit of a surprise um, in the 21st century, I guess. And he, he, he described himself as a vegetarian for 32 years. And in fact, it's interesting because when the Mind Lab feature was yes. set up, which was quite, was quite interesting, I think. Um, in Roger, the- describe that, describe that a, a bit for people who... Perhaps the- uh, yeah, well, there's there's a, a mind lab. It's a it's a um, well, is it neurological research. It's, it's um, the the person in charge of this particular uh, piece was called uh, Dr. Duncan Smith, and it's on the south coast uh, of um, England. And um, effectively, it's one of those situ- situations where where you're given a smell um, to smell and then a screen to watch. And I I think what happens there is is you get given three images after you've smelled to smell. And then the um, equipment records your uh, response to it. And there was three people involved. Victor, who described himself in the middle, as it were, as as the 32 uh, years being a vegetarian. And there's a lifelong vegan called Vicky. And then there's a meat eater called Dane, who... uh, who said said that he, in no way w- would he consider becoming a vegetarian or, or a vegan? And not without the, a fight, he said. Not without a fight. Oh, is that what he said? Oh, I, I didn't pick up on yes. that one. And um, so the interesting thing there was that um, when they did the tests, and uh, Victor reports that he had to go back two hours later to get get the test results, as it were. Um, both himself as the vegetarian and the, and the Vicky the vegan reacted negatively to the pictures of nothing back burgers, whereas Dane reacted um, positively. And um, there was there was some talk then about in in terms of you know um, are we kind of hard wire wired to to be attracted to meat? And this this a small part of evidence is it's very un, unrepresentative, obviously, but this this small piece of data was suggesting 
that we're, we're not hardwired. It's, it's a question of maybe our upbringing. And in fact, it was from that section when they went straight into the Melanie Joy section, which was the sociological bit about culture and everything. So it was all kind of it all kind of fed into the into the fact that uh, we are meat eaters culturally rather than we're hardwired to be so. Yeah, no, I thought that was a I thought that was a an that was an interesting segment, um, and I'm glad he. I mean, I, I when when uh, he first started describing it, I thought, oh, what's what, what's this what's this going to be about? And is yeah, this going to be a, is this, is this going to be a waste of time or what? And then I was I was pleasantly <laughs> surprised because I thought, you know, because we you know we hear this all the time from people that that eating animal products is something that's you know that that we're hardwired to do, and so they're you know and, mm. and and that and that we all we're all walking around suffering, you know, and and thinking, boy, you know, I really wish I could eat a steak, or boy, I would love a piece of that cheese pizza or something, and it was. Interesting. Yeah, of course. Uh, the, the, stere- the stereotype is is that is that vegans go weak at the knees whenever they smell bacon. Which yes, is, is, yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. And, and so I, I'm glad. I'm, I'm actually glad that he that he did that. But as I say, I was I was surprised when he uh, when he identified himself as a vegetarian. Well, I was going to say going back to that because I was also very surprised. Um, my friend Vish wasn't surprised because he said if he was vegan, we would have heard of him. If he did this huge feature film and then he was a vegan animal rights activist, we would have heard of him. I'm sorry to say that, but we hadn't really heard of him. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we we did see the animals film. But he might have. He might. I mean, he might not have been a vegan. I mean, I, I guess it didn't surprise me that he wasn't a vegan in 1982. Um, and and um, I, I have to tell you, I, I I became a vegan in 1983. I had never even heard the word vegan. I was I was unfamiliar with the word vegan, and and um, I was not aware um, uh, uh, until I was told uh, and I learned. But I was unaware that there were people in the world who didn't eat any animal products whatsoever. So now I realize that you know that 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 uh, although uh, uh, things were not um, as developed then even in Britain as they are now, uh, or perhaps they're not. I'm not sure, but but. Um, uh, it doesn't surprise me that he wasn't a vegan in 1982. What surprised me was that um, uh, he hasn't become a vegan since, um, yeah. and that, that that's that surprised me a little bit. But um, but you know, look, uh, 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 and maybe I mean, it's also not clear to me, um, you know, that maybe he he is uh, uh, you know recently a vegan or whatever, but he but he didn't feel that he had been vegan long enough. To make a statement, so he wanted to, you know, identify himself as a vegetarian, and then have somebody involved in the study who was, or calling it loosely a study, but uh, in the project, who was a lifelong vegan. That woman, Vicky, was her name. Vicky. Yeah, it yeah. was Vicky. Yeah. And the thing is, with with regard to his vegetarianism, I was. Um, I was sad when I heard that because it just changes the entire dynamic. You know, you have somebody still using animals. So when I found that out, nothing surprised me. He talks, yes, he's only really talking about treatment. Now, if you think about the the fact that he's still using animals, he is concerned with treatment. Um, well, you know, let's uh, let's talk for a few minutes about um, what Victor did with uh, talking about. I, I thought he got into that section about large animal organizations and and uh and and he um he actually uh, used the segment of, uh of part of the discussion that he and I had about the large organizations in which I was taking the position that uh the large animal organizations had done very very little to improve animal treatment because in fact given the property status of animals they really couldn't 
do very much to improve the treatment of animals. And he he did, uh, I think, um, confront both uh, both Wayne Purcell of uh, the Humane Society of the United States and Martin Ballack. Uh, uh, Roger, do you do you remember? It's is, what's the name of the group that Bal- that uh, Martin heads in uh, Austria? I think it's Association. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not uh, with animal emancipation or something like that, is it? No, no, no. It's, I think it's Association Against Animal Factories or so, some, something like that. But it's an oh, aw- it's, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's Society an aw- Against Animal Factories or right, something right. like that. Yes, yeah. that's right. And um, he did, he did um, confront both of them and basically say, well, where are you getting with your incremental improvements in animal welfare, you know, using animal welfare reform to get incremental improvements in treatment? Where's it getting you? Um, and is it working? And and um, uh, he seemed to think that Martin Ballack was taking a different approach from Wayne Pacell, and I don't think that's right. Uh, I mm. think I, I think they both I think both both Wayne and Martin pursue the same sorts of of uh, welfare reforms. Uh, you know, you have uh, you have uh, HSUS promoting something like Proposition Two, which is supposed to uh, uh, result in the, uh, the the conventional battery cage uh, being phased out or being uh, uh, banned as of 2015 in California. Uh, whether that's going to happen is um, I, 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 my my speculation is it won't. It's certainly not going to happen in 2015. But you have uh, and you have Martin Ballack doing the same sort of thing in Austria, and. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, and so Mar- and I was a little I was a little confused because it seemed that uh, Victor thought that there was a difference between what Wayne was doing and what Martin was doing. I don't really see any distinction. I think they're both pursuing tiny, tiny, tiny steps. And also uh, a point that didn't come out. And again, in, in fairness to Victor, uh, because I, I you know it was 27 minutes or 28 minutes long however long the segment was and there's only so much you can do in that time and there's only so much complexity you can get into but one of the interesting things uh, that I think or one of the things I, I think would have been interesting to, to explore with both Wayne and with Martin was whether um, these incremental reforms are things that uh, merely make Animal, you know, animal production more efficient. They're very, very. I mean, they're, they're, they in a sense are making animal production more efficient. For example, the uh, Wayne talked about the gestation crate campaign. Uh, there's a perfect example of something that HSUS argues ought to be abolished because it is economically inefficient and that electronic sow feeding operations are much more economically efficient. They result in greater sow productivity, etc. If you look at the HSUS campaign on on, um, on uh, controlled atmosphere killing, it's the same thing. This is an economically, this, is, this, this will increase production efficiency. This is a better thing to do. Same thing for, uh, you know, the, the, there's a literature out there about why veal crates are economically inefficient, etc., etc. And, um, and so, in in a sense, I, I, you know, it would be, it would be interesting to see how they would have dealt with how both Wayne and Martin would have dealt with the argument that, uh, for the most part, these animal welfare reforms are not uh, doing anything except making production more efficient. To the extent that you have things like um, cage-free eggs that may be raising the price uh, to some degree. Uh, people are willing uh, to pay that price, not simply because, and 
probably many of them not primarily because they're interested in animal welfare but because these things free range eggs etc are being promoted as healthier you know healthier products so people are you know there's yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different also, reasons so there was there was a bit where they intercut I mean uh, it's interesting there because um, I thought there was some ambiguity in the way that uh, the HSUS and then the ballot situation was presented um, but also, uh, when Purcell was talking, he did intercut with the kind of vox pop thing, some of the, the media thing, where it was talking about Burger King was going to get some good publicity out of this. And I think in some senses, that's the way that uh, Victor Schoenfeld critiques things, by bringing in an counter voice underneath or on top of um, you know, the person who's talking. Now, this goes back to Elizabeth's point. You know, is that too subtle, in a sense? Uh, for the general reader um, or the listener, because um, I, my initial reaction to the Austria thing, Gary, was the same as yours, and so I listened back to it again very carefully. And so this, this is my kind of take on that, if you like. First of all, we started off with the HSUS, and interestingly, what Schoenfeld did there, he talked about the HSUS, Peter, and the RSPCA all put together uh, as welfareists, mm-hmm. and he says that they heap praise on businesses that, that um, profit from meat-eating, meat um, just because they've made some very, very small changes, okay? Then he's talking about the exploitation systems are left intact. In and then he yeah. switches to Austria. And he says, here, there's something different going on in, in Austria. But his actual words were interesting. He says that in Austria, there's been some d- decisive nationwide victories. But I'm, I'm wondering whether it's nationwide which is important there, that the fact that Purcell was talking about state by state and, um, you know, proposition after proposition, whereas uh, the distinction there with Austria might have been the, the nationwide thing. But the interesting thing was that, that Balak seemed to, ex- I mean, I've been a, I've been a critic of, of Balak's position. I, I think it's a bit elitist. I think it's a bit shallow. I think it's a systems analysis. And, um, you know, Balak is effectively saying that, you know, you, you have some kind of elite... Uh, a contest and the rest, the rest of the proles, um, they, they they fall into line uh, eventually. And he was talking about the change from battery to barn eggs, not even free range. He said. So we're talking about yeah. barn cages, which which Schoenfeld himself said, "Well, wait a minute, they're they're still, you know, they're still confined, aren't they?" And uh, and all this. And um, what what Barrett seemed to say in answer to that was that he had some great faith in the law, because the law said that the barn chickens had to have X, Y, and Z in terms of welfare. And so, because the, the law says it, it, everything must be fine and dandy, but obviously, as, as we know, when you try to regulate atrocities, you're into a really sticky, messy kind of phase of things to do. And then, interestingly, Barak then said something incredibly interesting, because he says the barn system is good in terms of a welfare improvement, and then he says... But even then, it's not very good because the chickens will still spend a year in this hole until they're slaughtered. And so it ended up that the, the system that he was praising initially, he then described as, as, as like a hellhole for, for, for birds, which, which is quite weird. But at the same time, he then went back and said incrementally, he believed, he's convinced of this, that incrementally this move to barn eggs will eventually move to an end of all egg farming. Now, you know, I don't see how you can make that kind of leap whatsoever. And that section was finished then, just finally, with Chantel saying, isn't it interesting that some organizations, and here he was including the organization, along with HSUS and the rest, 
said, isn't it interesting organizations need to claim victories even though the animals suffer, uh, suffer still? Absolutely. Fa- Absolutely. Farm. No, yeah. I, so I think, I think he brought them back. In, I think they brought them all back again together then. I think he initially said there's something different going on in, in Austria, but let's have a look at it. Once we've looked at it, then we find that it's actually not. Yeah, I, I actually listened to it again. I thought it was a little ambiguous. I really couldn't tell. I, I think that, 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 that your interpretation of it is, is, uh, is certainly plausible, and it may have been what Victor was intending. But I think, um, I think it was – I think – well, I mean, I, as you know, I've been a, Bal- I've been a, a critic of Balak's as well, and, uh, and I've written about Balak's approach. I think it's tremendously confused. As a matter of fact, I don't really see Balak's approach as being anything different from the classic – new welfareist approach that I was describing in 1996, this faith, this absolutely groundless faith that incremental reform is going to lead to abolition when there's no empirical proof of that. And I thought Balak was internally inconsistent. He first started off by saying that, well, they didn't want to make small changes because small changes would establish an equilibrium that they would be stuck with, you know, for a long time. And so, you know, they, they, didn't, want to, they didn't want to go for the small changes. They wanted to go for the large changes. And then he proceeds to describe moving from conventional battery cages to cage-free eggs. And then says, well, you know, this and this is this is a big change. Well, you know, he didn't bother to explain why that's not going to establish an equilibrium that that we're not going to be stuck with for another ten or twenty years. Yeah, how's um, that going to lead to abolition? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's it, it, number one. Number two, he never describes or never explains in anything that I've read that he's written as to how there's going to be any sort of you know how incremental reform is going to lead to to to, to abolition. So I thought in a sense uh, but but you know I it was an interesting what Victor did though was interesting in the given the relatively short time period that he had. I thought he raised and and I don't know how subtle you know I don't the problem is is uh, is I just don't know whether it was too subtle for people but I certainly think he succeeded even uh for those people who aren't really familiar with the issue all that much, he succeeded in really raising, I think, uh, in a fairly uh, fairly clear way, that there's something wrong with these large organizations. That they're, that they're they're um, you know he clearly was uncomfortable and had a very that very long uh, uh, overplay segment of uh, instances where industry is being praised by uh, you know where there, where industry is really benefiting from. Uh, accepting these uh, these these welfare reforms, which are economically efficient for them anyway, uh, but they're they're getting praised by uh, by the animal organizations, and I think um, what was coming out in that segment was a certain lack of comfort about the relationship between the animal protection organizations and the uh, and the uh, uh, in- institutional exploiters. So it was all in all interesting. Listening to Bellick, it was astonishing to me how much he basically figuratively hung himself it was amazing what he did he started out by he completely all the things that you said he didn't he had our faith in the law um that the animals that are property i mean the law demands that they have this and they have that and therefore everything's hunky-dory and then he turned around and said um but all the male chicks are still killed at birth and all the hens are still slaughtered after a year anybody listening to that is going to um, anybody, any animal welfareist who's a new welfareist, who's a new vegan, who's like thinking that these things are good, is going to be listening to the leader of the supposedly huge 
that that alone, that segment alone was enough, I think. I liked that segment. I didn't like the way on Pascal's segment. He's such a politician. Um, I don't like that it ended on him saying that, you know, animal industry fears HSUS number, you know, above all. But I think Balak's segment, even if anybody else hadn't said anything, was enough to put questions in people's minds. <laughs> Roger, you were going to say something? No, I was just going to say that in the end from that section that we've been talking about, the decisiveness that he began talking about in relation to Austria was his only relative in the end. Uh, but I think that um, he kind of he kind of moves to that conclusion from a statement of difference and says, well, here's something that's a little bit different. And then let's analyze it and look at it. And then, uh, as Elizabeth says, you know, Ballot kind of really kind of made a, a, a bit of a mess in a sense. And, and then... The conclusion was, well, in actual fact, they're all the same. You know, they're, they're just making very small steps, and, and, and at the same time, they're, they're kind of praising the uh, uh, the companies uh, that are involved, and also this faith in the law um, thing. Which I suppose is is something that they all they all share. Uh, yeah. You know, in in the sense that if even if you look at something like the um, control atmosphere killing thing in Canada, you know, this 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 idea that that some somebody somewhere is going to monitor this. And it's, it's going to have some kind of legal, uh, you know, monitoring system, which means it's going, you know, these kind of uh, reforms are going to be meaningful. Whereas you know for a fact that ten down the uh, the line, somebody else is going to be making videos exposing the system, which is supposed to be great, you know, ten years ago. And I just I like the way he said. And in, in bottom line is you're leaving all of these um, farmed animals in horrific factory conditions. Bottom line, I mean, barn eggs, free range eggs, it's all factory farm anyway. Right, exactly. I mean, look, uh, well, let me make two comments about this segment. First of all, it's interesting. I, I met Martin Ballack in the 1990s. I was in England, and, and I, I think it was right around the time either I had finished or was – I, I think I had just finished um, Rain Without Thunder. And I, it was certainly the, the distinction between rights and welfare and my rejection of new welfareism and the whole notion that incre- incremental welfare reform would lead to abolition was something that I – that's what I was talking about then. And I, I lectured at a number of universities. Um, I went to Manchester, East Anglia, um, and a couple of other places. And and uh, Balak – I don't remember how I met him, but he came – I mean he drove around and drove from place to place with us. and. And um, we had you know, quite a bit of discussion. He at the time was a graduate student, as I recall, at Cambridge, and and um, and we had a lot of we had a lot of discussion. And it was interesting because I thought that he uh, was quite it, it quite agreed with the logic of the um, of Rain Without Thunder in terms of what I was saying about the property status of animals and its inability to to really result in in, in, in abolition or indeed to, to do anything except make uh, make. Uh, uh, production more efficient, and um, and then all of a sudden he he reemerges now as this um, spokesperson for new welfare. With respect to Wayne Purcell's segment, Elizabeth, when you said you didn't like the way it ended because he made that statement about um, HSUS being feared by agribusiness, this is something that um, I, I think it's important to focus on for a second because this is a very very common comment that you hear from. Uh, people who defend this welfare reform business, they talk about, well, industry is upset with us. Well, industry is always going to, you know, industry is, always, it, this is part of a, of a, of a, of a choreographed dance between mm-hmm. between the animal protection people and the institutional users. You know, the, the, they, 
they don't they basically uh, will will always challenge anybody who wants them to make a change even if it's a change which is uh, efficient for them to do or at, at, at worst is neutral um, it, they're, they're going to resist it because they're concerned that later on the there's going to be demands for changes that are not uh, things that they want to do number one number two they're always busy accusing their most moderate critics of being extremists that's part i mean that that goes on that goes on in every single i'm sorry if the dogs if the dog barking is being picked up by the microphone there's nothing i can do there are five of them <laughs> there are five of them in this house and and it's amazing it's amazing that we can get through it without uh more cacophony but um, well they obviously, they obviously didn't at the end of this section either gary yes exactly 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 exa- exa- they were upset with balak they were very upset with Balak. that's that that uh, that deep voice that you hear is our our latest edition that's christine oh, that christine? that's that's oh. christine who is just an absolutely lovely dog and she is now bounding in uh, in here and she's a, she's a, she's a lovely dog and she's our 9 year old uh, golden retriever that we got from a kill shelter who had been dumped by her family and then adopted and brought back one day later because she allegedly did not get along with the dog of, of the people who adopted her and gave her all of 24 hours to show that. And she's been here for, I don't know, two, three weeks. It's the easiest introduction we've ever had. The other dogs, our other four dogs, love her. She's an absolutely wonderful dog. Now, perhaps, there she is. And she, she agrees. She agrees. She agrees. And it may be, it may be the case Christine, Christine, honey. Go, um, Christine. Go, Christine. Go, Christine. Now, now, one of the reasons why the other dogs may like her so much is because she has she's very tall and uh, she can get up on the counter. Uh, and she has she has several times gotten up on the counter, and she has pulled down um, food. Um, in one case, she got an entire loaf of bread. Um, and then this, and then this morning she got a um, a bag of vegan biscuits that I had just gotten yesterday, and um, and so she brings them down, gets them off the counter, splits them open, and then everybody has everybody has a good time. So this may be one of the reasons why the other four like her so much, <laughs> but uh, but she's a she's a wonderful dog, and um, and it is sad when you when you think that you know people have a dog for nine years and then take the dog to a kill shelter and say I don't want this dog anymore. It's just just remarkable to me. But um, but getting getting back to to um, uh, the the comment that Pascal made, I think it's important to understand that these these uh, reactions that one gets from industry uh, are are really quite predictable. They always call their most moderate critics uh, the extremists because they you know. The, they want to set those people up as the people that they, you know, if they if they give in to them, then they've given in to the, you know, the the extremists. Uh, they've given in to people who are making really hardcore demands, which in fact HSUS is not doing at all. As a matter of fact, HSUS um, is is by and large uh, a real partner with uh, the institutional exploiters, and a, a, I mean a real partner in terms of facilitating the continued uh, exploitation of non-human animals by making it more acceptable and more economically efficient. The other point I wanted to make is that uh, Wayne Wayne made the comment that um, uh, and, and again you know I don't mean I know Martin and Wayne personally and as I do many of the people were you know that I've talked about um, in terms of the welfare movement and I'm not challenging or questioning their sincerity at all I just I sincerely believe they're just wrong and and uh, Wayne made the comment he said well 
you know, uh, there had never really been any any uh, progress in the factory far in the, the in the area of factory farming until HSUS got into the fray. I believe was the expression he used. Yeah, yeah, and, right, yeah. You know, and 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 what that neglects and what people need to understand is factory farming was something that uh, that developed only in the 1950s, basically, and so it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, and and um, it is only now, uh, in the first part of the 21st century, that agricultural economists are becoming aware of the inefficiencies of factory farming. That people didn't really know very much about the inefficiencies of factory farming before, and it's only now becoming clear that certain practices really are not efficient practices, and they are uh, they are what uh, what some of these welfareists explicitly identify as low hanging fruit. And so now you have groups like HSU. And PETA and these other groups going after the low-hanging fruit, things that are already identified by agricultural economists as economically problematic. So the fact that you know that they're getting rid of you know that that that, that Wayne and HSUS is having some success in uh, with things like the gestation crate, well, big deal. I mean, you know, the 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 um, the pork industry has problems with the gestation crate. The pork industry has recognized the gestation crate is problematic. The veal industry has recognized that the veal crate is 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 problematic in terms of the amount of veterinary costs that are involved and how you can lower those costs substantially uh, without making too much of a sacrifice in 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 the uh, in what you want to sell in terms of meat uh, by giving the the animals uh, a bit more space and some social contact with other calves. So you know, in a sense, it's uh, it's you know, there's no surprise there. And uh, anybody who really believes, and I think you know, again, there's only so much Schoenfeld could get into in 27 minutes. And 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 and, and I'm not saying that I I fault him for not yeah, getting I mean, into in, these. In some senses, Schoenfeld left left a couple of strands. Uh, untied, but then, as you say, you know, he was very limited for, for time. But um, I mean, the interesting thing about the facility thing there, uh, I mean, you really what you're saying is, is that these welfareists are pushing an open door, which, which is true, right? But the thing is, the door won't be flung open for them. They will still have to push because, because yeah. you know, they, the, um, the other side of it have got their own constituents who they've also got to satisfy in terms of defending their interests and this kind of stuff. So if, if you're, as, as it were, um, you know the trade union of the farmers. You can't. You can't just be seen to capitulate to the animal welfareist, the enemy, from the farmer's point of view. You know what you've got to do is you've got to resist them, even though in the end you're actually going the same same kind of way. So, it's, uh, as Gary said, it's, it's a bit of a bit of a dance. So the, the state is also involved. But there's also another element to um, the cell. I, I feel, and um, Elizabeth touched on that when when she called him Still a politician. So you, you, you said he was a politician, and I, and I really believe believe that myself because if you go then from this program, which presumably um, Wayne would have thought is going to go out to animal welfare people who are familiar with the animal film, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, he says that about well, the meat industry are frightened of the uh, HSUS, and yet three or four weeks ago. He, he was in, interviewed by AgTalk mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, a, a, an industry. And, and, and there he's saying to them, with an audience of farmers, you've got nothing to worry, worry about yeah. fr- from us. We, ju- we, exactly. just, we just want to tinker, tinker the en- edges. We just want to re- regulate a few things. You know, there's nothing fundamental that we're going to do to you. So he's playing it both ways, just like a politician would. 
Absolutely. And I didn't like that he got so much time. I was annoyed by that. But what, one of the things about that, and I don't know if this is related to the BBC, they have some nerve saying that they're abolishing factory farming or whatever with these campaigns. Because if they have, you know, if they can possibly even begin to describe what they're doing as not being factory farming, as these f- so-called free-range systems, or even like the veal crates, if they put three or four veal calves into a cubicle together, that's factory farming. It's all factory farming. So it really infuriates me that they're selling this lie to people about how we're abolishing factory farming. We are not. And in New Zealand, they're bringing in, because with the population rising and the meat consumption rising, it's going, you know, intensive farming is going to increase. They're just going to have slightly different ways of doing it. They're realizing that these animals do have emotional lives and that they are sentient beings. But rather than take the, you know, the, the, the vegan argument, they're saying, well, we have to, in order for our production to be better, we have to acknowledge that fact. And what are we going to do about that? But it's all factory farming. And I just think that people are deluding themselves when they think that they're tackling factory farming and abolishing factory farming. Yeah, I mean, but but it's it, it, you know it's not just it's not just Wayne Purcell and and Martin Ballack who say these things. I mean, you have Peter Singer saying that you know the worst abuses of factory farming are being phased out in 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 Europe, which is just nonsense. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. And and uh, you know, I mean, the I, I well, I don't even understand how anybody can say that with a straight face. But 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 that's that's the that's the position that's the position that they're taking. I should say uh, that uh, Roger Yates and I have a paper um, that we. We have done uh, the ball, and, and I, I take the blame for not finishing uh, my part of it yet. But You're a um, man. yes, yes, indeed, yes, we're, indeed, yes. We're indeed. waiting with yes, yes. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a paper that basically takes the position that these these welfare reforms are basically things. If if we took, if the movement took an abolitionist position and demanded animal rights and the abolition of animal exploitation. This is what you'd get anyway. You'd get you'd get industry responding by making minor welfare changes and then trying to reassure the public that everything is fine and they don't have to go further. So these would be you'd you'd get these you'd get these these sorts of of reforms. I mean, and 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 I also think because they're economically efficient, most of them are. You'd end up getting them anyway. I mean, the interesting thing is that you know if you were starting a chicken slaughtering operation tomorrow, and and you didn't use controlled atmosphere, and you didn't use the controlled atmosphere killing method, you'd be you'd be a lunatic because it's a much it's a much cheaper way um, of of uh, of killing chickens. So you know, I mean, you're going to see these things happen anyway, uh, and you know they're going to happen anyway. And if there had been, and so so in a sense, not only are they are they unnecessary, they're they're, they're both unnecessary. The animal welfare reforms are unnecessary and counterproductive. They would occur anyway, and then they end up being used by animal welfare organizations to reassure the public that it's all right for them to continue to consume animals. I mean, it's. It's it is it is a, a truly bizarre. I want to move on um, to uh, because we have a sociologist on the program. I need some enlightenment because I heard these comments by uh, Melanie Joy, I believe, and Joan Denayer, and I have to say I was confused by both of them because um, the uh, the the Melanie Joy comments. I mean, first of all, I mean, it, it, uh, to put it in context, after Schoenfeld goes to this. Um, this, does this project where the guy um, uh, it sub- subjects him to aromas of meat and then shows him pictures, etc. Duncan, Duncan Smith. Sorry. Duncan Smith, yes. He, after the Duncan Smith uh, uh, event, uh, Victor asks, he says, well, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, we're not hardwired to eat these products, so the question becomes, why are we doing it? If we're not hardwired to do it, why are we doing it? And um, 
And then they interviewed Melanie Joy, uh, and she says, well, and I wrote down, I took some notes, she said that there's an, there's a, an invisible dominant ideology that facilitates this, and it's called carnism. Carnism. Yeah, carnism. carnism. And, and, and that, you know, that, that it really sort of, it, 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 this ideology sort of keeps um, the animals out of our sight, so we don't really sort of, it, 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 the, the animals are invisible. And I had two reactions to that. My first reaction was, um, I thought that's exactly what Carol Adams, I haven't seen this book, this, uh, this carnism book. Um, I've ordered it, and um, I will be interested to see to the extent that she cites uh, Carol Adams, uh, because that's exactly what Carol Adams was saying 25 years ago, was that um, for a variety of reasons, we didn't really recognize the, the animal that was there. Um, and yeah, I did... And, and, the absent stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was the absent, it was the abs, absent reference stuff. Now, I disagreed, actually, I disagreed with Carol when she said that 25 years ago. I mean, I think she was wrong 25 years ago to say that, because I think that, you know, to, to some degree it's true, but I would also, I, I would say that... Um, we do know what we're doing, um, and we do have this. We have it, it's not an ideology that actually keeps the animal out of our sight and out of our minds. It's an ideology that justifies the exploitation of animals. That is, we have this notion that there that, that animals are natural inferiors or spiritual inferiors. You know, they don't they don't have reason. They don't have symbolic communication. They don't have abstract concepts. They don't have an interest in their lives. They don't have souls. Whatever it is that you know, they're they're natural inferiors, cognitive inferiors, or they're spiritual inferiors, and it is that which 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 justifies the the um, the uh, 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 exploitation, and and so you know I, I I mean and it's called speciesism. I mean I don't understand why we why we need yet another word. I mean carnism. Um, why I, I mean we've got we've got a word called speciesism that sort of really does explain it quite well once once we understand it. And she she made the comment, and I wrote this down: if we don't name it, we won't see it, and if we don't see it, we don't we won't discuss it. And I think that that's just nonsense. I mean, maybe it's because I don't understand sociology well enough, but I thought that was nonsense because it seems to me that we have named it. It's called speciesism. We do see it, and we discuss it endlessly. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people, and we heard from you know people like Wayne Purcell and people like Martin Ballack, and there's a zillion people out there who have full-time jobs, and they're making good livings doing nothing but talking about this stuff. So, so we are discussing it. We're just coming to the wrong conclusions, in part because the animal welfare movement is pushing people in the wrong direction and making them think that the solution to the problem is happy meat. But I really didn't understand this, this, this business about, you know, know the invisible dominant ideology and uh, I, I, I it just didn't make any sense to me well she was talking about speciesism but she was giving it a different name uh, and as Nybert says that um, most people talk about speciesism as a prejudice and, and so that kind of brings it down to individuals whereas sociologists would see speciesism as an ideology and it's, it's embedded into our institutions and so in in that sense um, she she was kind of say, saying the kind of thing that um, Bauman would say the kind, the kind of material that I use in my PhD, for example, uh, like, for example, physical difference, uh, distance will, will create moral distance, this kind of thing. And maybe w- what she was really saying, in a sense, was that the ideology that we call speciesism uh, is making non-humans morally invisible, uh, which is one thing that probably is true, that you could, you could probably say that. And also, she was involving uh, some of the work that I've done as a sociologist, which is look at um, the impact on, on children being brought up into within the ideology of speciesism or being born into a species society, if you like. And uh, she said that um, we begin eating uh, animals and exploiting them in, in other ways before we're aware that that's what we're doing. So before we're morally aware individuals, 
we are involved in, in this yeah. thing, you know. And so from that point of view, I, I could, as a sociologist, kind of latch on to, to, to what she, she was saying. Um, although, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily uh, think that she needs to kind of change the language. But again, that's what academics do. You know, they, they, they want to be known for a particular a word, you know, indexicality, kind of, oh, <laughs> you know, th- th- this, this name means, means that concept. And so that's probably where carnism... Let me ask you a que- let me ask you a question. Have you seen the book? No, funny enough, um, I did what you did, and I looked at buying it today. Funny enough. <laughs> well, but, I, um, I, yeah, because I'm very curious as to. I mean, it seems to me that her central concept, the notion that that there's some ideology that keeps this all from us morally, is is very very similar to Adam's af- absent referent business very very similar striking i mean when i when i heard her on i when i heard her speaking i had it i i had to go back and listen to it again because i i thought this is you know it doesn't sound like carol adams and yet this is carol adams position and but i also think as i said you know i mean i i disagreed with carol when she when she said this in the 1980s the business that you know the reason why we did this was because we weren't aware of what we were doing and the answer is it's nonsense and as far as i'm concerned that's nonsense we know what we're doing we've come up with uh multi-level justifications and and uh, yes it's true it's not yeah enough. that's right but the point is uh, i mean i take it when you say we we're talk- talking about society I'm talking about yeah. I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm talking about all of us who participated. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember. I mean, it's been it's it's been you know 28 years. I've been a vegan, and 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 uh, I guess what 31 and 32 since I've been a you know since I stopped eating flesh. Um, but I mean, I, I you know my memory's fading as each day goes. And Elizabeth, this will happen to you one day. But um, but but my memory is getting 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 uh, darker. But I can tell you that I do remember being. I remember when I was younger and I ate animal products, and and I remember um, you know uh, uh, having a discussion with somebody in college uh, who was one of the you know few vegetarians I knew. I didn't know any vegans because I said, as I said, I didn't, until 1983, I didn't know that vegans existed. But um, I did know one or two vegetarians in college, and I remember having discussions with with um, with one of these people, um, and her name was Andrea, actually, I remember. And and I remember ha- having discussions with her and thinking, well, you know, but but look, they're, you know, animals are animals. I mean, you know, they're, they're different from us. They, they don't, you know, they don't have the same sort of, they don't think the same way that we think. They don't really care that we're eating them. And, and, you know, I mean, I used to believe all of this stuff and it wasn't because they, you know, they, they weren't in my, in my family. I, mean, I, I it had interacted with dogs. I, I guess I knew on some level that dogs, um, you know, had, were more complex beings, um, then, yeah, but you've explained that yourself with with the concept of moral schizophrenia, Gary. But the 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 point I think that she was making, and I do echo the, the fact that she it sounds like Carol Adam, Adams' work uh, mixed in with with a bit of you know, general sociology. Yeah, I, I understand that. But uh, maybe she's really just saying that um, we we're aware of we're aware of um, of what we do on some level. And then if you if you look at the work on denial, which, which again I I did, then often what we do is we take we take steps to not know what we already know you know there's a kind of complex psychological process that we, that we can go through and this doesn't involve children now because they they are generally unaware um you know they have to go through a, you know a two tier uh, system of, of bringing them in, in you know in, into the uh 
uh, into the world in, in which at first you know non-humans are friends uh, uh, and uh, companions, and then the next thing is you've got to tell them, well, some are, but other, other ones we eat and this kind of stuff. But then when, when we're adults, even though we can know something, we can definitely take active steps to not know it. So maybe she was looking looking at that notion that we kind of we know it physically, but we can then not know it morally, and we can do it by the way that you just said. We can call them animals. We're humans. They're animals. They're lesser than, and we we can then start to put all these barriers uh, in in between our moral concern and them, and we can we can. Yeah. Other, other huh. I, I don't know. But just I just I just don't I don't see it as that. I mean, it, it seems to me it's pretty clear that you know what we're doing is is we're we're making a moral decision that they're inferiors and we're superiors and that we have the right to do what we're doing. And I don't think it's a I don't think it's a, a you know I think the moral schizophrenia is a direct result. I mean, as I said in introduction to animal rights, I mean you know I had I had it sort of laid out as the problem. You know the the disease is moral schizophrenia and the the cause of it is animals our property basically and and the cure is applying the principle of equal consideration and and so you know i i think that i think that um you know we've got we've got fairly elaborate straw we just you know this is fairly out in the open and it's been fairly out in the open for a while now and um and and you know we've been discussing it uh you know we've been discussing it uh uh, philosophically for for centuries and certainly intensely i I, I think now gary what, what you're doing there now you're you're talking like an academic in other words, you know, you, you you have thought about it for a long time. Yeah, I can add my yeah my two cents as a new vegan and all that, if if you like here, because when I thought of um, absent referent or whatever, I thought it meant that you didn't stick up for them. So for me, absent referent is you don't you don't um, you you know you know what you're eating and everything. Um, I obviously misinterpreted it. No, no. What, Car- what Carol Adams what Carol Adams meant with absent referent was uh, was the notion that you when you ate an animal, you didn't realize you were eating an animal because of the way we had constructed the institution of consuming animals. We basically we basically um, uh, denied. We had a number of devices that we used. To deny the the moral personhood of animals, it's very similar. I mean, in a sense, to you know, to you know, pornography does the same sort of thing. You're not you don't really sort of focus on the the, the that there's a person there. You're just focused on whatever body part you fetishize, and so you know, and that's one of the insidious things about pornography is that is that as an institution, it it it's got a number of subtle and insidious devices which which um, keep you from recognizing. You know, everybody, you know, most men are horrified at the idea that their mothers or sisters or lovers or whatever would be involved in pornography. Yet, when they're consuming pornography, they're consuming they're consuming something involving someone else's mother or sister or lover or whatever. And and yet they don't. You know, uh, 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 there's a there's a bunch of insidious and and, and Subtle devices, which basically keep us from that, um, and and um, you know we're aware of it on one level, but um, I guess it goes to what Roger was saying before. Sort of the moral impact doesn't hit us, but yeah. but um, but one, you know one device, of course, is animal welfareism. That, yeah, that, well, that's that, right. That's actually, right. Yeah, that that acts as a very strong buffer. But carry on, Elizabeth. What, what were you saying? 
Well, I was just going to say that, you know, very recently I was consuming animal products. Um, I've only been vegan for two years and I remember very clearly what it was like. And um, I, I think I discussed it recently. When I was eating um, animals, I knew, and it sounds sadistic for me to say this, and in reality it is, um, I knew that they were thinking, feeling beings because I had seen them um, and I'd been close to them before. Even sheep and cows I had, I had seen and I, and I had shared my house since I was born as long as I remember with um, cats uh, so the thing that I didn't acknowledge was that I had a moral obligation to them or that I had had no right to use them because I was indoctrinated with the, with the right to use them so it, it isn't a complete ignorance of, of what you're doing it's it's a um, it is a superiority thing I was told whenever I raised my voice in protest and I tried a couple of times and this is not to um make judgment on my family, they were also indoctrinated. I was immediately um, told that that was a ridiculous way to think. Um, these animals are food and that's what they are. And I knew that I was eating um, living um, sentient animals. I just didn't, um, I just thought I had a right to do it. Um, I had, you know, I knew that I, I didn't, you know, it was never discussed how, you know, how brutal their treatment was. And I was never indoctrinated with welfare until right before I went vegan and I started buying, um, you know, when I started seeing the videos and things like that. And that's what Peter told me to do. And that's what I did until I, I woke up. But I, that's the perspective I can offer is that, yeah, everybody knows, um, but they're told that um, we have a right to do it. And um, so well, where it wasn't the, where, that... Where the welfare comes in there, Elizabeth, I think we've spoken about this before, where the welfare bit comes in there is the fact that people know there are such organizations as the RSPCA and that there are no, they know that there is organizations which are called Humane Society of something or other. And so therefore, their job, they think and they know, is to sort out any problems in the system yeah. of youth. Uh, and so that does act as, as a very kind of strong uh, buffer in the sense that going, bringing this back to the animals film, someone could even go and watch the animals film, be horrified what they see, then go out and go down to the to the local restaurant and then be aware because of animal welfareism that what they've seen on the screen has got nothing to do with what's just been put in front of them as, as a meal because that's not the same because there is these things called the, the you know humane societies or well, the RSPCA would have done something about it. that's what they're there for and so I, I agree I mean I, I agree with you I think that that if there's anything that accounts for why people continue to eat them it is the welfareist ideology, and I think specifically, it's not an invisible. It's nothing, nothing invisible about it. It's it's this notion that we've been hearing about for two hundred and some odd years now, that basically um, animals don't care that we eat them; they only care about how we treat them and how we kill mm. them. So there's nothing inherently wrong with what we're doing. So so even even if I'm uncomfortable at some film I've just seen. Um, or something you've just told me. Um, I'm going to engage in an activity which I don't regard as inherently problematic because I've been told by people who claim to have a great deal of concern about animals. You know, the, the leaders of the animal movement. They've told me. I mean, you know, again, this is you know, this is Bentham's position. It's Singer's position. You know, that that killing them per se is not imposing a harm on them. And I think if you take that perspective, I think then you know all of this stuff becomes well, you know. It's. It, I feel a little uncomfortable about it, but there's nothing inherently wrong with it. It's. It's just a question of tidying it up, and that. And we're making progress. And see, I think that's what's really insidious about all this. Is that. Absolutely. Is that. Is that. Yeah. You know, we're telling people. 
eating the animals is per se not a bad thing. They, you know, you can be, you know, you you can even allow yourself. I believe the expression that Singer uses is the luxury of meat, um, and you know, you can you can have that meat as long as you you know you take care to make sure that that animal's been treated well. And as a result of the wonderful efforts of organizations like HSUS and Martin Ballack and these other welfareist groups, this is exactly the direction in which we're moving. So it's not that there's something inherently wrong with it. It's not like it's, we don't view it the way we viewed slavery. You know, as something where, you know, yes, there were better forms of slavery and worse forms of slavery, but slavery was inherently an objectionable institution. One of the things that welfareism has done is sanitize it as an institutional matter. They've sanitized exploitation as an institutional matter. And I think that that's really, I think that that's, that that's, uh, that that's really problematic. Uh, and I think that's what accounts for why, P- I mean, you know, certainly the, certainly, Whatever you want to say about you know in the past, uh, we can we can discuss it. But it seems to me clear now that the, one of the major reasons why, particularly in 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 the United States, in Britain, in Australia, in New Zealand, places where there's a really strong and has been historically a strong sort of animal welfare ethic, one of the reasons why. Uh, people really aren't questioning use is because they've got animal people running around saying, don't worry, we're going to tidy this up. And since you're not doing anything inherently wrong anyway, um, you know, tidying up is really the, 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 the right way to go. But, but uh, look, I appreciate, you know, Roger's attempt to, to defend another, <laughs> another sociologist. They, 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 they all, they all, they all defend. Now, there was, a, there was, a, there was another thing, I, and that is Denayer. Failed miserably. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, Mel- Melanie Joy should have a deep debt of gratitude to you um, for for trying to wage the good fight. Um, and and um, uh, but uh, the other the other sociological point was the point that Denayer makes about you know uh, when we question words um, uh, the question words that we use w- we open the door to change. And again. I'm not denying. I don't want to sort of come come off here as sort of anti-sociological, but I'm not denying that. You're doing a good job. Well, all right, all right, all right. Let me. All right, all right. Let me be frank with you. All right, I don't. Sociology should not be taught in universities. I'm only kidding, um, and I'm, I'm only kidding, Roger. Um, but I do. I do find it odd when Denayer says that because I agree that language. I think that you know the language can reinforce all sorts of bad ideas that we have, but it's because we've got the bad ideas in the first place that we're using the language. And so, by by um, you know always referring to meat as flesh, which I do all the time. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I do that all the time. It's not it's not going to stop if 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 the fundamental moral reasoning is speciesist, um, then it the language. It doesn't matter whether you change the language. I mean, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting is with respect to sexism. There are a lot of things now. There's still there's still a huge amount of sexism in the language, but it's but but it's different from the way it was 20 years ago. But I don't really think, in many ways, um, sexism has 
I think sexism in certain ways has become more insidious, and 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 I think sexism is still deeply entrenched in the society. I also mm-hmm. think racism is deeply entrenched in the society. I mean, there are certain things you don't say now. There are certain words you don't use now. But you know, you don't have to use those words to express racism. I mean, what we're seeing right now in the United States, or what we were seeing uh, uh, even with greater frequency in terms of um, the sorts of of responses to the Obama health care plan. Um, anybody who was who was observing that stuff, who didn't think that it had to do with um, an expression of racism and taking back our America, what that meant, you know, what the, you know, that was a, th- th- those were trigger mm-hmm. those were trigger words for taking it back for white men and taking it back for our white folk and yeah, yeah. and you know and so so yeah, the fact that we don't use certain words anymore doesn't mean that we're any less racist. And so I, yeah. I, I isn't isn't it the case, Gary, that the um the right at the moment are, are um, promoting a, a slogan or going around with, with T-shirts which have got um, keep the change. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. And so that's keep that's a kind change. of yeah. It's a kind of oh my back. goodness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I just don't think it can hurt though. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with avoiding you know. I, look, uh, I agree with you. Bringing it out in the language, it can't hurt. I mean, I think that. I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm not. I'm not doubting it. It can't hurt. I just don't think that it is in any way. Um, you know, just like I don't think Melanie Joy is is offering us a solution by saying that there's this you know this invisible ideology that accounts for all this. I don't think that really, as an empirical matter, explains things. And I don't think as a as a way that we all morally reason the way white, the the way we talk reflects how we think and i understand that there is you know the the, the concepts and the the words are inextricably intertwined because we're animals who use this this symbolic communication uh uh instrument so i understand that but it just seems to me that um you can change you know the the, the language changing the language is not going to um change the thinking uh, that 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 it, I agree. It reinforces it. It's a better idea not to use it. But the bottom line is, if you want to continue to exploit animals, and if you don't think it's morally objectionable to exploit animals, you're going to continue to exploit animals. And I don't really care how your language changes. There are a lot of people in the animal movement who do not use those words anymore, but they are still actively engaged in animal exploitation, and they're actively engaged in calling people who oppose animal exploitation divisive, absolutist, fundamentalist, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, it, it doesn't even work necessarily with animal people. I mean, I think we've got to, you know, we've got to realize there's that, that what we're dealing with is actually, you know, something that is, really is like racism, um, yeah, well, I, I think the the issue is very complex here, and but I think that um, a kind of linguistic challenge to the dominant paradigm is important. But obviously, it can't just be the only thing. Well, not on that, its own. I mean, it's not not on its own. But I think that uh, that's it, right. But it, it it can lead and it can follow at the same time. And so you know, these these things are, are generational. And in some senses, the the point that you just made, Gary, which is that many animal advocates still use. Uh, language which which wouldn't necessarily uh, find its way into uh, in Dunia's uh, work uh, is it, it's interesting though because I made a note right at the beginning of this uh, one planet thing where Mike Mansfield 
makes a comment and he's doing that usual thing about a chicken has got the space of an A4 piece of paper. Do, do, you, do you have A4 over, over there as well as uh, in Europe? No, but no, 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 but it's, it's, it's a size. It's paper. Yeah. Yeah, it's just smaller than full, full scap, right? And so, but my, my Mansfield said, this is, the, this is the, um, the space, and he says, that's its space. That's its yeah. space. He says he says that, and so even even for somebody like Mansfield, who's very careful with, with the language, very articulate guy, he still finishes off with calling non-humans its. Uh, and what um, I think is is being said there in terms of the linguistic challenge is that um, it reflects how deeply embedded these ideas are within our culture. And so if you then adopt a challenging language, it brings people up short. And therefore, it can create a conversation. It can create a awakening, and you can do that. In actual fact, funny enough, going back to the animal itself, one of the things that Schoenfeld did was just go around in the mic with Mike in, in in the 1980s and said, "Can you tell me about non-human animals, or what do you think about non-human animals?" And people were just looking at him as though he was he was speaking some kind of Martian dialect, because the the phrase non human animal didn't mean anything to, to, to anyone, you know? And so I think, I think language can be a, a challenge to the dominant paradigm. It, it's no good just on its own because, as Gary says, what people will do is carry on exploiting and just go along with the new language. So you, you've yeah. got to have it in, in tandem. So I don't think it's a question of what, what um, follows and what leads. I think it's a question that these things evolve together. Well, I mean, I per, perhaps. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it, just seems, it seems to me that, for example, um, you know, many, many of us now accept that humans are, I mean, it's, it's rather hard to deny, but um, nevertheless, um, many people now explicitly will acknowledge that humans are animals, you know, that there are human animals and non-human animals. So the sorts of issues that Victor no, people was... People still deny that. I, 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 as you know, I go on lots of forums, and people still deny that. And they'll question me and say, what do you mean non-human animals? You mean animals. You know, stop calling, uh, stop calling me an animal. Because really? People, really? Do they? Do they? Do they? Do they really do that? Oh yeah, all the time, and they they just don't like it. They feel insulted by it because, of course, sociologically, again, if you look at the research, the, the main, main yeah, the main time we use animals is when we insult somebody, especially women. Funny enough. Well, that's that's really interesting because I I, I um I don't encounter that. I mean, occasionally I do. Occasionally I will. Um, mostly from people who are politically conservative and who. Who um, who will use most of the time when I hear that, it's in the context of somebody saying to me, um, "Well, humans are different because they have souls, and so therefore we're not like animals. Because what separates animals from humans is that humans have souls and animals don't." So I'm generally getting yeah. this from people who yeah, yeah. who are who we, are religious. We don't. We don't t- yeah, yeah, that's right. But we don't tend to get that religious argument so early. I think. I think. Uh, in North American discourse, I think you get this religious argument very quick and very early on, whereas I think it's, it comes a little later when, when, when we're discussing things elsewhere. I mean, most of the time, I don't, most of the time people don't object when I say uh, human and non-human animal. What they say is, they say, well, you know, yeah, we're, we're animals, but we're different because, you know, we, 
we have you know self awareness or we have this or we have that you know we have bigger you know we have we have bigger brains or we have this or that you know and and that we're just we're able to do things that they can't do we can do calculus and and whatnot and they can't and so yeah. so that's the sort of thing that I generally get is that you know yeah we're animals but we're different and so but the, but the thing is is that clearly clearly things have evolved considerably from the time when Victor Schoenfeld was making the animals film. And in terms of language and the fact that there are more, far more people now willing to acknowledge that, you know, the, the, the reality that we're all animals and some of us are human and some of us are non-human, uh, but we're all animals. And, um, and nevertheless, that's not, that hasn't really sort of resulted in some sort of camaraderie and recognition, no. you know. And so that's, that's the thing. I mean, again, I understand that they're generational. I understand they reinforce each other. All I'm saying is that, you know, is that, is that I think, again, um, you know, yeah, the, interesting the, the though, Gary. I mean, I think I think the part of the problem is something that you touched on when you gave gave that talk in in Dublin when we were talking about the the idea that there's still a lot of ignorance about the notion that um, cows have to be constantly made pregnant to, to produce the amount of, of milk that is extracted uh, from them, and that I think comes back to the fact that not not only do we resist not quite often the label animal, we never think of ourselves as mammals. We never think of ourselves as mammals. We don't self-describe as a mammal. We don't self-describe as an ape. And so the interesting thing then is that when you then talk about cow uh, mammary glands, it doesn't seem to make any connection at all to a... Even with uh, women. Yeah, that's right. To, 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 to their own pregnancy. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't make a connection. They don't think, oh, well, yeah, that's probably right because I'm a mammal too. And yeah, but, know, uh, but, but Roger, let me ask you this though. How many, I mean, I know I know lots and lots. I mean, we've both been teaching for a long time. We've both been involved in universities for a long time. I know tons of people who self-describe as feminists. I know lots of them self-describe as radical feminists. And yet, you know, and they would, you know, they're very careful about the language they use, but they do not see at all these issues. And, you know, you can talk about them until you're blue in the face and, and, and you're not going to, you know, you're not going to, to make a lot of progress with some of these folks. Um, you really got to sort of get to them conceptually. And it's not yeah. just a question of, of language. But in any event, look, yeah, I, that's, I, what I, that's, what, no, that's what I said. If, if it's language only, then that's not, not enough. But language does, does it's an important thing. You know, again, again, you know, often, often in sociology, we would say that language um, is one of the ways that we reflect and articulate power relations. And you can even see that. I mean, I'm in the sociology of humor, and um, you can see how language is used within the power relations on a gender basis or, or a class basis or on a race basis, even through jokes. And so language is very important. It, it is the way that we do... Um, talk to each other. And, and the interesting thing there is that it, I don't think it has to be so overt. I think a, a lot of what we've talked about this evening is kind of out of focus. You know, it's like speciesism is, is something there that's kind of hanging around o- over us as some overarching ideology, but it's kind of out of focus. We don't really question it that much. Nobody ever calls it into question too much. There's an element of safety in numbers that I feel to it. Um, yeah, I, I think I think I actually I think you've just hit something very very important, and that is, I think one of the main reasons why people continue to do what they're doing is, they listen to the arguments, and to the extent that uh, there are a few of us out there who are making arguments rather than appealing to uh, other sorts of things, but we're, we're we're making arguments about animal exploitation. I think a lot of people. Say yeah, that's really interesting. But since everybody's still doing it, these arguments must be wrong. 
in some way I can't figure out. There's some sophistry. There's some, and I, I really think, Roger, you you know that that's a the, the point you've just made is a really uh, important one, and that is mm. that there is safety in numbers, and we continue to do what we're doing because we we figure well. Everybody else is doing it, so it must be right. If 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 it were wrong, uh, the way uh, these folks argue it's wrong, or some of them argue it's wrong, then um, you know people wouldn't be doing it. And and I think you know you have also have the problem with a lot of people are in relationships, for example, with people who are not vegan. So therefore, you know, it's rather hard for them to sort of come to the conclusion that the person they're living with is doing something morally wrong. So this is one of the reasons why I think you know the flexible veganism business appeals to a lot of people because you know it allows you to sort of continue a relationship without making a normative judgment about the conduct of somebody that you're living with. So so I think that you know there are, there are lots of complications there. All I'm saying is that. You know, you and I have been involved in the animal movement for you know thirty years now, basically, and a lot of our friends and the people that we know um, don't use that speciesist language anymore. But yet, uh, a lot of them aren't vegan, and a lot of them are continuing to exploit animals. And so, so you would think that, gee, you know, um, if if language really played, you know, I I think it's something else. I, but in any event, who knows? But. Uh, look, I think that's a good point. We've been going on a while, and I think it's a good point. Elizabeth, um, Roger, do you have any final points you want to make? Well, all I want to say is that I really, really hope that um, we do start to see more articles and programs and things that are about use. It touches a nerve. People have never heard it before, and it would be and it's it's incredibly effective. So I think that with the Schoenfeld. Um, documentary. I'm very interested to hear about the vivisection because I do think that he is going to express a, a, um, a an objection to the use of animals in vivisection completely, which a lot of people do. Uh, I just wish that it was with all animal use, but I, I do think that this was like I suppose I should be positive about the fact that he did. It. You know, there was some objection to welfare reform, but I'm looking forward to the next decade where we're going to have programs and we're going to have articles and mainstream articles about use. And then that will change the paradigm in which the language we use will be um, much more relevant because, you know, Gary's right. I mean, people think that animals are ours to use. They think they're things. It doesn't matter what, what we say. So um, that's what I hope that that happens, and I think that we're starting to do that. So I was very disappointed, to be honest, in this in the BBC one because I guess I had higher hopes. But I'm a realistic enough to realize that you know it was still better than I guess things that happened ten years ago. I just don't know what happened ten years ago. So to me, I'm impatient, but I have to realize it's going to take some time, and we're we're doing it. And we're looking for, we're looking forward to I guess the the next program because we, we it's kind of half time if, if you think thinking of this we're, we're half time in in this process just one fine point from me is that um i think Schoenfeld said something very interesting right at the end when he he started to introduce the fact that they were going to turn to the section for the next program he said we're going to be something like walking again with eyes open yeah he said, yes first, yeah, he did he did right. yeah well that, that's an interesting and a very kind of sociological thing to say in the sense that um Bauman talks about the the fact that society can create moral sleeping pills. We we can do that, you know. You know, the societal ambience can turn people off, can turn people away, can create us and them situations, can create boundaries, and you know we are quite good at that. And in in you know, a lot of sociologists said that we kind of need to do that. We need to fit things into little compartments in in order to kind of deal with them. 
And so people tend to focus down on either themselves in a very selfish way or just their family or wider circles. You know, very, very few people are involved on a national level. Very few people think globally. You know, you go, you go to your community and say, you know, what, what's been of concern to you today? You know, I don't think many people are going to talk about you know, starvation in, in the developing world or, or things like that. It's going to be, right. oh, you know, am I going to get back in time to, to make the tea or, you know, there's an interesting thing yeah. going on with the soap, with the soap opera, this, this kind of thing. And so I think society does have a way of feeding us these moral sleeping pills. And so I, I, I was struck by the idea that uh, it'd be quite nice for more of us to walk with our eyes open. I, well, I think, I think it's been an interesting discussion. I want to thank you both very, very much. And, uh, and again, I want to echo um, the, the, you know, I think Victor did a, 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 a good job given that his primary focus was on seeing whether or not treatment had changed. And I think from that perspective... I think he did. He did a um, you know he did a good job, and I like you, Elizabeth. Um, so I agree with Roger in that in that respect, um, and I also agree with you, Elizabeth, that I look forward to the future where, you know, the, the, it's only been the past few years that there's really been a discussion about changing the paradigm from from treatment to use. That that's not yeah. that's not a discussion that has happened um, you know until fairly recently, and and so I think that you know it will be and it, and and it's obviously an idea which appeals to a lot of people. One of the things that I find very very interesting is the number of emails I get from people who were omnivores when they encountered um, the abolitionist approach. And um, and and it's not that they were vegetarians and they went vegan. Although I get lots of emails from them, but I get emails from from a, a good number of people who were carnivores when they first encountered the abolitionist approach. So I think that you know that this these ideas that you know, hey, come on, we all agree that if we're going to impose suffering or death on somebody, we've got you know the 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 burden on justifying that falls on on us, and we can't do it. So therefore, yeah, you know, we can't justify that use. But in any event, thank you both very much. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you aren't vegan, go vegan. It's incredibly easy. Uh, it's it's better for your health, for that of the planet, and uh, most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do. And uh, we uh, look forward to our our next discussion. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you.